Welcome to part two of our conversation with Brad Reynolds, in which we explore the nature of reality and the universe through the eyes of Brad Reynolds and the mind of Ken Wilbur. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. His integral model began to emerge later on, the aqua map, all quadrants, all levels, all lines, all types, and all states. Not only did all the stuff that you've mentioned before, all these paradigm-rattling, earth-shaking ideas that came through him, he also showed us how it all fits together. All these pieces come together in one and one map. And in addition, I think this is extremely important, he emphasized the importance of practice, right. of spiritual, physical, emotional practice. He identified the essential lines or parts of ourselves that we needed to work on to put this map together. So it wasn't just a a great intellectual cheeseburger. It was like something that we could participate in. And the map became our guide for walking through this journey of evolution, both collective and individual. Beautifully said. Very well put. Yeah. Nice. (laughs) Yeah, that's a, that's absolutely right. As he said, mysticism is doing, not reading. And another one of my favorite quotes is, is, is uh, how's it go? The purpose of a book on mysticism should be to persuade the reader to take up mystical practices. And of course, as his later developments, so that's what phase three really evolved into in the later 80s is when he was recognizing how it wasn't just a solid big you know lump stage by stage clunking up is that there were different developmental lines and streams and this is something he recognized in the early 80s he mentions it but he his work didn't really focus on that because it was more focused on the stage development And, of course, his work got sidetracked in the late 80s when he fell in love with Treya, and she was diagnosed with cancer 10 days after their marriage, and five years later, she would pass away. So he basically took a 10-year hiatus between 86 and 95, where he did not publish any new books. And she passed away in 1990, maybe 91. And then he basically went on a three-year writing retreat and developed the Aquil model where he discovered the four quadrants that then was presented in 1995 with sex, ecology, spirituality. And then once again, he started publishing a book every year into the, the new millennium to further refine that developmental scheme you were talking about, states. He also brought forward the importance of states as opposed to the, to just stages, peak experiences and how they were attractors to help you then make the journey through the developmental stages of life. 
and also the different lines, how an emotional line could be less developed than your cognitive line, and that could be less developed, or your spiritual lines even less developed than all of those, and, and how to be integral is to integrate all those different aspects of the human personality and the self. And of course, the difficulty of it is, is by the time you're entering the transpersonal levels, you're actually having to begin to transcend the self or what he called the self system, or rather our identity with those different worldviews and levels of development. In fact, his second book, No Boundary, is still a very powerful book. In fact, my understanding is, is therapists actually like that book the best because he kind of explains, Ken explains, even before the evolutionary model became so important, is how how important it is to learn to identify with no boundary awareness. Because our self-identity tends to be bound by whatever level or self-concept that we have of ourselves. And of course, the whole purpose of true spiritual practice is to loosen our identity with ourself. And by doing that, paradoxically, you actually open up to identify with the world as a whole and to thus then become more compassionate and loving. And so actually the heart is what takes over. And as the mind realizes that there are limits to its capacity to understand the universe, ultimately the heart must become the driving force to make a person a whole human being, right? Brad, again, you've given us so, so much. <laughs> and uh, and uh, part of that has included a number of terms with which some people may, may not be familiar. So let me just kind of point to some of the many important things you've said. Because again, the trouble with Ken is, you know, <laughs> you, can, you mention a new idea and it's like, well, this could be worth an hour-long discussion. But let's just emphasize some of the things you've said. First, you draw, pointed out that Ken drew a distinction between states of consciousness and stages of development. And you you went past that pretty quickly, but that in itself is an extremely important distinction. And and when we get to his later work in, on religion, the, the implications, some of the implications of those will become apparent. But but yes, there had been in the 60s and 70s this big emphasis on altered states of consciousness, uh, meditation, psychedelics, contemplative practices, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But can was very instrumental in popularizing the importance of stages of development and pointing out these are two very different things. So first that. But then you mention, and you just did in one sentence, that in his phase three, he not only not only laid out stages of development, but stages for different developmental lines. But many people may not know what lines are. So lines are basically a term for different capacities of the psyche for emotions or cognition or faith or whatever. And you implied, Brad, but I want to just emphasize that those different capacities can mature. They all go through their own individual stages, corresponding stages, but they can mature at different paces or degrees. So there can be these imbalances between for example, a high cognitive development, a low moral development, then you get something like a psychopath or a sociopath. So there's enormous amount in what you said then. But then you introduced the idea and just gave the term of quadrants. But 
people may, as, as a further refinement of Ken's work, once he'd laid out, first off, a spectrum of consciousness, second, development, and the idea that humans develop through multiple stages from pre-personal, personal, transpersonal, but then pointing out that development occurs different, somewhat different ways reach psychological capacity. Then he stepped back and did something, just moved to a whole nother level of embrace, shall we say, using the title of your book, Embracing Reality, introducing the quadrants. So tell us something about the quadrants and what exactly they are. Well, that is a real interesting story in his cognitive breakthroughs, because one of the things that we haven't mentioned, which was a major theme through Ken's work, was the great chain of being, which he ended up calling the great nest of spirit. And that basically recognizes that evolution proceeds, well, we've mentioned transcend and include, but that you go basically from matter to nature, to body, to mind, to soul, and to spirit. And so, in other words, it's built upon a hierarchy. So Ken was always kind of promoting the idea of hierarchy, which during the 70s and 80s was kind of a dirty word. But Ken Wilber's work helped make people realize, well, there are natural hierarchies. Hierarchies aren't just dominant hierarchies, such as in society. So during his three-year writing retreat in the early 90s, he had written down all these different hierarchies on his yellow pads and had spread them out all over the floor. And he was trying to figure out why these different hierarchies don't seem to match up. And what he noticed was is that, oh, some of these hierarchies are addressing the inner consciousness of the individual. And some of these hierarchies are addressing the worldviews of the collective society. And other hierarchies, like in science, when you go from atoms to molecules to cells, are addressing the exterior hierarchical expression. And, and then other hierarchies, such as going from tribes to civilizations to modern industrial world technologies, are addressing collective exteriors. And so we realized, hey, what you have is basically an interior developmental scheme. You have an exterior developmental scheme and you have an individual developmental scheme and you have a, a collective developmental scheme. So there's the four quadrants right there. Interior for individuals, exteriors for individuals, interiors for collective and exteriors for collective. And so he ended up putting the interiors of individuals up in what we call the upper left. And then the upper right is the development of individual exteriors and the same for below in the lower quadrants. And so that was an incredible breakthrough. And then that kind of became the backbone of what he presented in sex ecology, spirituality. And of course, at that time, he wasn't calling it aqual all quadrants, all levels that came, you know, within the next year or so. And that also became the backbone of what a brief history of everything that came out in 1996 was about as well. And then he just kept further refining that to the point now that there's not only four quadrants, there are eight zones, two zones within each quadrant, because in each quadrant, you can look at something from the outside or from the inside, right? 
And one of the great things about the four quadrants was that was another way that Ken was trying to rescue the interior from scientific materialism that always reduces everything down to physical elements alone, right? And Ken was trying to point out, as many people do, that the interior elements of reality are just as authentic as the exteriors, you know, that consciousness isn't just brain matter. It has its own realm and possibilities. And so the four quadrants was a way of trying to rescue the spectrum from what Ken called flatland, which was actually, you know, part two of sex ecology spirituality was going to be its original book called Flatland. So once again, he gave us another great method and tool for critiquing the reductionism of scientific materialism. The flatland is when you leave out the interiors. That's right. It's just it's just flat. And then he says when when you actually get the other, it's like a cube instead of a square. It just opens up whole other dimensions to look at. And and a couple of light years ago, you mentioned something that I wanted to comment <laughs> ago about. You talked about how, you know, he guides us into these transcendent stays way beyond the ego. But one of the amazing things in the model, too, is the fact you transcend and include. You get down to it, oh, your little ego self, well, that's God, too. It just has to be in right relationship with the larger self. But it's not like it goes away. Actually, it gets refined and becomes more precious as we continue the journey. So I think that is, I don't know, I just think that's incredibly inspiring and, and heartwarming. Absolutely. Yeah, it absolutely is. And that's why now he puts a lot of emphasis on growing up and cleaning up and showing up is because that little self, the ego self, has to be healthy and integrated in fact, one of the fundamentals of real spiritual life is you have to have a halfway strong and develop strong ego in order to actually take up spiritual practices, because otherwise you're doing spiritual bypassing, what's called spiritual bypassing. In fact, I think it was Jack Engler, who was, by the way, the other author of that book, Transformations of Consciousness, who came up with the phrase, you have to be somebody before you can be nobody. <laughs> because the Buddhists talk about, you know, there being no self. So you actually have to have a well-developed and balanced ego before you can actually reap the rewards of advanced meditative practices, which is part of the reason why all of the great traditions and the yogas and Buddhism and Hinduism all talk about is you have to take up ethical principles of practice and live right life, you know? So you have to be involved in not killing, not stealing, not doing evil, as well as practicing good dietary habits and, you know, moral ethics towards everybody. Because anybody knows if you ever sit down to meditate and you're having a bad day or, you know, you were yelling at people, you can't sit still. Your mind is going crazy. And so you have to have a decent, stable life in order to then have a foundation in order to explore these higher realms 
with equanimity and a, a state of serenity. And so Ken's model allows all of those issues to be addressed. Not only is there a developmental arc and he inspires all of us to evolve our consciousness, he also inspires us to fill out all the lower levels that have pathological elements to them and our shadows and that type of thing. And that is what further got refined during the phase four development that most people are very familiar with. And beautiful, you're pointing to the, again, one of one of the features of Ken's work, the inclusiveness, that there is this very rare among contemporary intellectuals, a solid grounding in conventional disciplines and disciplines, both intellectual disciplines and somatic, psychological, etc. disciplines, as well as an openness to and mastery of virtual knowledge and and familiarity with practices, but an emphasis on the importance of honoring all of them and practicing all of them, at least to whatever degrees we can, in order to be a full human being. That's so rare. That's why it's called integral. <laughs> oh, there's a new idea. <laughs> I want to make sure we don't overlook one of Ken's books, which doesn't get kind of the press that some of the others do, but you've emphasized on several occasions, Brad, and you've pointed out too, John, that the emphasis on practice in Ken's work. And so there's one of his books is Spiritual Choices, co-authored with Dick Anthony and Bruce Ecker, I think, on the very important question of how do you how do you discern which spiritual communities are both, let's say, safe on the one hand, as opposed to problematic and potentially dangerous on the other, and which are effective at truly inducing transformation, which he calls authenticity, as opposed to simply supporting us at our current developmental stage. And if I'll just, I think I'll just give a context for the this book, Brad, before you explicate it for us, and to say I think this was published when in the eighties, and it was uh, shortly after some of the catastrophes, spiritual catastrophes such as Jonestown. So there was a real concern about the possibility of spiritual pathology and and the potential dangers, and the word cult suddenly ricocheted in, into our culture and. You know, there was this question, well, if you're doing anything spiritual, you're likely to be accused of being in a cult. So there was this very important year-long project that was put on by Dick Anthony, a group of people, to investigate spiritual traditions and to specifically some of the cult cults. And I was part of uh, a partial part of this, so got to sit in on some of the interviews with people mm -hmm. from various traditions. But it seemed like a very important work, and Ken, in his usual comprehensive way, provided some systematic understanding of how we might differentiate helpful healing traditions and communities from problematic, even potentially dangerous ones. So, Brad, I've given a lengthy introduction or context. Please, love to have you speak to this. Well, it's really important that you bring that up, because that is a overlooked book of his. Part of the reason might be because he only contributed ch a chapter or two, but Dick Anthony and Bruce Eckert realized that Ken had given a paradigm, a model that they could use to what they would call adjudicate authentic spiritual teachers 
from cultic-oriented spiritual teachers. And so one of the easiest ways to do that is, is the charismatic leader addressing pre-personal concerns, like you must believe this in order to do that, or are they addressing transpersonal concerns in which you actually transform your consciousness to a greater awareness? And of course, the problem came up, which you allude to, Roger, is that some of the traditions of Hinduism and Buddhism that had come over from the East, even though these were practicing yogis and Rinpoche teachers, they got caught in sexual exploits and different behavior patterns that didn't seem very spiritual at all. And of course, when they came into the modern West, who had a highly developed sense of autonomy, people weren't going to put up with what appeared to be pre-personal behavior patterns. And so Ken's book was able to, and Dick Anthony's was able to uh, address this very important matter. And in fact, I've recently gone back and have done a study on that because I do have a spiritual teacher. So it's very important to me that people not throw out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. Spiritual teachers do need to show a certain level of authenticity in order to be followed or to follow their teachings and stuff. And yet at the same time, so one of the ways that Ken did, did this is he differentiated between legitimacy, which legitimacy for him was that as a teacher at a certain level of consciousness, if he is expressing that level well, he has legitimacy. So a priest, for example, can be a very legitimate teacher of a mythic religious tradition, right? However, that is just at a horizontal level of translation. Ken's model shows a vertical transformation of development. And so he would call, if a teacher is encouraging you to transform from mythic belief systems to actual transpersonal awareness, that that gives a teacher an authenticity. And so one of Ken's chapters was titled something like Legitimacy, Authenticity, and Authority, because you want to have your authority figures be authentic. And, you know, we all have professors and teachers, for example, that address a particular level in which they are experts at. So a physicist professor is able to translate the information of subatomic particles and molecules and that type of thing. And so we go to them for their authority on that translated level. However, you don't want to look to your physics teacher to teach you how to be a spiritual person, for example right? Just like you don't want to look to your guru how to understand particle physics. And so the spectrum once again gave a map for people being able to discriminate and distinguish between the authority levels of certain teachers. And at the same time, you want to make sure that you're not just dumbing down to pre-personal cultic tendencies, which is obviously what Jim Jones in Jonestown 
were about, or Charles Manson and David Koresh, because they were very strict, you know, you must believe this particular way. Whereas a guru is, if they are authentic, is encouraging you to develop your own capacity to become your own authority on these matters, not just to follow anybody blindly. And so that's why Spiritual Choices, which was the title of that book, is really based upon our capacity to make wise choices about what we get involved in. And yet at the same time, the great tradition of global wisdom, which is what one of my more recent books is about, wants to acknowledge the authenticity of real spiritual teachers because they have inspired humankind for centuries. All of the great spiritual teachers, both East and West, were authentic individuals. None of them are perfect per se, but they all have inspiring messages. And the authentic ones want you to develop your own consciousness so you can make the proper and wisest and most compassionate choices for your own development and for your family and for all the people that you come in contact with. So once again, Ken was on the leading edge. And I think it's a book that people should certainly avail themselves to. In fact, I don't even think it was included in his collected works, to tell you the truth. I don't think I've read it, actually. I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up. Yeah, it's it's hidden. I mean, most of the chapters are by Dick Anthony, but Dick Anthony was, you know, a very well-known psychologist at the time who often would testify in court rulings on cultic tendencies and, you know, people that were suing other people and that type of thing. And I very much appreciate the way both Ken in this book and you and just what you've said about the role of gurus are once again giving us a an inclusive, integrative, or to coin a phrase, integral perspective <laughs> here, in which you know, which it's a both and, an inclusive, and so much of the response to that initial furor and hysteria about culture was do away with all gurus. A very simplistic idea, or you know, other exclusive responses, but Ken in his work, Dick Anthony and Ken in the book Spiritual Choices, and you in what you've just outlined about the, the the nature of an authentic guru have given us a very inclusive approach of, yes, be careful, and here are some of the qualities of authenticity in teachers. Let me just say, let me just follow up on that, because that's very important what you just said there, Roger. And see, once again, we can see the timeless quality of what Ken's work offers humanity. Because these kind of subject matters will never go out of date. I mean, even though the book came out in the late 80s, which is what, 30 years ago, it's going to be just as relevant 100 years from now because these matters of personal development and expanded consciousness are innate to the psyche and the anatomy of human beings. And so the work that Ken Wilber has laid a foundation for could very well become as, as important as Plato and Aristotle. In other words, a thousand years from now, people could still be talking about Ken Wilber. 
it has that kind of veracity and authenticity to it because not only that as he often talks about his work isn't just about now it points to our own future evolution you know in fact that's what your podcast is about deep transformation we're talking about the future evolution of the human race to develop its own higher potentials that are already innate in us and that is a great adventure that we all have to get involved with globally because we can still see how our world is suffering from inhumanity to man and how these have been the same problems that create war and confusion and destruction and death and violence that have been going on for centuries, yet it does not have to stay like that. We can transform our consciousness and develop our higher potentials, but we have to do that all together. And not only us as the masses, as the people, but our leaders also need to participate in this great evolutionary journey together. Beautifully said, Brad. And you reminded me of a quote from Ken from uh, Up From Eden, where he said, and I think the exact words were, true transcendence is the only cure for the homicidal animal. And yeah, it's like we're in a race between consciousness and catastrophe. You know, the idea that external, more technology, better technology, whatever, will get us out of the mess that we ourselves have created is clearly not so. And the only way out is up. It's <laughs> just kind of a simple way of saying up what you Eden. said. Yeah. <laughs> That's nice, John. I like that. The only way out is up. That's good. <laughs> That's, I think you've coined something for us to remember there, John. I love your statement, Roger, the choice between consciousness or catastrophe. Yeah, well, unfortunately, that's too true. You've given us a beautiful way of distinguishing between problematic and authentic teachers, spiritual teachers and gurus and, and teachers of all kinds, namely the stage-specific appropriateness of their authority. Their authority is appropriate for specific stages and specific domains of knowledge, and they encourage our own autonomy rather than binding us to them. So that's crucial. I, there's another area of crucial distinction that I'd like you to speak to, which is the, and something which the book Spiritual Choices did beautifully, was lay out the characteristics of problematic, not just teachers, but groups and communities, and how some of the distinctions between the problematic and pathology, patho pathological on the one hand, and the potentially transpersonal and spiritual and growth-oriented on the others. Could you say a little more about that? Not kind of prepared to say too much about that because I kind of went over it in talking about being able to distinguish between authentic and legitimate. The other great distinction to point out is the pre-personal the cultism itself tends to be a pre-personal development. So you could actually call it a kind of a childish way of thinking because in a cult, you're actually looking for the leader to kind of play your parent and to tell you how to think and what to do and all that kind of thing. And so you're submerging your autonomy 
And so a lot of times people that haven't developed a strong autonomy or a strong ego sense are the ones that get attracted to cultic behavior. And unfortunately, we can also group a lot of our great world religions into that type of tendency, where people just believe the mythic structures of a particular religion and not explore its transpersonal self-transcending structures. And I think that is very true with fundamentalist Christians and fundamentalist Muslims. And, you know, there's this tendency, especially in integral circles, not to want to criticize particular religious traditions. And But a religious tradition has the full spectrum there, too. So religious traditions also have pathologies, you know, and this is what allows, for example, the horrible tragedy of Catholic priests and the abuse of children. And it's not that you want to throw away the church or Jesus Christ in particular, but you definitely want to throw away this transgressive, illegal behavior. And so we got to be able to make these type of very important distinctions. And then that also comes to the fact, since that was one of the things Ken and the Spectrum tended to do, is you can see how you have childish behaviors, adolescent behaviors, and then mature behaviors. So part of what the modern world tends to do, and many psychologists have noticed this, we tend to be kind of adolescent in our development. And one of the tendencies of adolescence is to say, don't tell me what to do. I do what I want to do, you know? And so the the modern tendency of the scientific mind is like, I, I don't need any spiritual teacher. I know how to take care of my own business. I will abuse drugs and abuse alcohol, and I will do whatever I want to do. Just leave me alone, right? And yes. Everybody has to have legal rights to do what they want, but a mature individual will realize that there is processes greater than themselves, and so we must learn how to humble ourselves and turn to authorities that have developed greater ethic and moral capacities, and also look to the great tradition and the great adepts like Jesus and Buddha, Padman Sambhava, and the list is endless, St. Teresa, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, even on those type of levels of people that become attractors to what we can further develop into. And so that's why you don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater, as Ken would often say. And when as it, you've been emphasizing yourself in what you've been been saying, Brad, and the the importance of taking the best. And I, I and those that's couple right. of things you said, I really want to just make sure we don't get lost because you you throw out these one liner gems, and that is that there's a trap in the integral in a lot of communities of not criticizing. Yeah. But uh, uh, for example, not criticizing religion, but but there's a you know there's a as wide a, a span of perspectives and levels within religions as there are between them. So so there's pathology and primitivism and and, 
and fundamentalism within each tradition, just as there's extraordinary transcendence and wisdom, et cetera, et cetera. And we need to make a distinction, which isn't always made, between judgment as in the sense of condemnation and judgment in the sense of discernment. Uh, one leads to anger, aggression, the other leads to, to wisdom. And we really need the discernment. Well said, Roger, absolutely. And, and I want to just add in a couple of things to what you said about because I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm really wanting to bring out uh, these distinctions between the problematic and and beneficial groups. And uh, so you alluded to some of these. One is three that I remember. One is the distinction which you gave for teachers. Do the supposed benefits of the community come from? either the leader, the so-called charismatic leader, and that person's gifts or manner or power, or do they are they technical? Do the gifts come from a technique, a practice? So that's one crucial distinction. Another is, are these communities pointing to a uni-level or a multi-level possibility? Is it like everything is to be attained in this world as we are now, we, etc.? Or is there the recognition of further potentials and possibilities and transcendent states? And finally, is the community exclusive, that is, we are the chosen ones, or are they inclusive, that is, everyone has the potential for reaching these, these goals? And those are the three dichotomies or spectrums that I remember as being really important in differentiating them, in differentiating these community. So there may be others, but anyway, I wanted to get that in. So yes, I can tell you've been doing your research on spiritual choices because those are the main developmental adjudication models that are brought forward in that book. Well, I, I just reread your book, Brad. So yes, I have been doing my homework. That was I spent significant time with this one embracing reality. It's such a exquisite volume. <laughs> Let's see. So so to recapitulate, we've gone through a lot. We've gone through Ken's phase one or spectrum. We've gone through his phase two, which was his developmental breakthrough, and phase three, where he parsed out the development of different psychological capacities. And we've been kind of playing into, or we got into stage four, which is where he expanded from not just psychological or internal, but to a recognition of and opens to exploration of the whole, do all, all four major domains of reality and the recognition they all evolve and develop in their own ways and to integrating them. So we've covered four of the major phases of Ken Wilber's work, but there was still one further phase, sometimes called the phase five. And Brad, could you tell us what how Ken's thought and work and writings and contributions changed then. Well, I hope you were fed in your soul as much as I was by this last conversation. But wait, we're not done yet. We have one more part to go and it just gets deeper and better. Thank you very much for being a part of this conversation. We hope that you were moved as we are moved being part of it ourselves. We'd also like to say that this is being funded by Roger and myself. It comes out of our pockets. So if you would like to help us to mainly to get this podcast out to more people, because the bigger audience have, which is steadily growing, but the more people we can reach and the more marketing we can do, the more positive effect we can have on the world. So we've done a couple of ways, but we'd like you to buy us a cup of coffee. Very simple. And I do that with podcasts that I support and I find it's very satisfying. 
So thank you for your help. Thank you for your presence. And thank you for all you are and all you do. We love you.